Well, good morning. As Jason mentioned, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, and that brings us to the beginning of chapter 10 this morning. Um, Last week, if you weren't with us, we spent some time at the tail end of chapter 9, three individuals that have an interaction with Jesus and receive this call to follow Him, or boldly make the proclamation that they will follow Him. And yet, as we spent some time digging into each of those, we saw what we were calling a quasi-Christianity, something that resembled a follower of Jesus and yet was lacking the true substance of what it means to be a disciple that follows Jesus. Um, Through three different men, one that we called the comfortable Christian who was willing to go, but Jesus quickly calls out the reality that to follow him means you may not know where you're going to put your head to sleep at night. It's going to be uncomfortable at times following Jesus. The second was the convenient Christian that said, I'll go, but first, let me go deal with some things, and when the timing's a little better, when I receive my inheritance, then I'll follow you. And the third and final one who wanted to go back and say goodbye to his friends and family had this statement, but first, which is two deadly words to anybody who wants to truly surrender and follow Jesus, but first... Let me go and do this. Let me finish this. Fill in the blank. And our text this morning is going to bring us to a bit of a crossroads in discipleship. No pun intended. It's just the reality of what we're looking at, that, that it brings these followers of him. We saw last week and the 70 we're going to look at this morning to a decision. Um, can the cost of discipleship truly transform your life, and are you willing to step into it? Or is this merely an intellectual thing for you? Because the reality is Jesus is calling people to more than an intellectual agreement of who he is. Uh, This is why we see James 2.19, speaking of the demons, that you believe there's one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. So, um, You're in company with demons if you just believe, and yet there's no real surrender and transformation that takes place in your life. No, what Jesus was calling them to was much more than that. He was calling them to surrender their lives to Him, to be obedient to His call, and that was uncomfortable and inconvenient at times. And it called them to a a focus solely on the Lord and His kingdom and not their own. And it's one this morning that we're going to see calls these 70 to go out and to go proclaim that message to a world that needed to hear it. But let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, and we'll read through to verse 16. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, and go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, 
your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And God, as we open your word this morning, God, as we come to this crossroads of discipleship we see taking place, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, your people. Lord, that our claims in following you would be more than words, but they would be backed with actions. As we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would um, speak clearly, directly, according to your will for our good and your glory. God, we thank you for your word, for the freedoms we have to be able to open it and learn from it and allow it to lead and guide our lives. And Lord, we pray that the actions that take place leaving here today would match what you have spoken to us today. Lord, any distractions in this moment, God, any fears of what's to come, any concerns about what's taken place, God, anything that would try to steal our focus from your word in this time, we pray you would remove it, that you would fix our eyes upon you and speak. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're taking notes, you can write down this title this morning, The Crossroads of Discipleship. That's what we're looking at here, these crossroads of discipleship as they are called to take what has been instructed to them and now put it into action in their lives. And it begins, as we read, after these things, after going on the road and having the interactions with these three different men, men that now Jesus appoints 70 others also. Now, there's some textual criticism here because we have scrolls we can look at that say 70, others that say 72. Um, choose your pick, okay? Our New King James this morning, I'm reading 70. ESV, I believe, says 72. That's okay. Jesus gathers this group together, and he is going to appoint them and send them out. And if you've been with us through chapter 9, what you're going to see throughout chapter 10 is a lot of similarities. 
You're going to see a very similar call, a very similar equipping of them, and very similar uh, the restrictions of what he puts on what they can bring and also what they are called to go and do. And so um, you're going to see a lot of that in this chapter and yet some unique differences within the 70 that differ from the 12. But why 70 is a question that a lot of people have asked. Jesus appoints 70 here that he's going to send out to these places before he goes there. And and a lot of people ask the question, why 70? It could be as simple as the fact that he had 70 ready and willing followers who he could send out. It could be as simple as there were areas they needed to go to and 70 was the right amount to cover the area well. Others think it's establishing some kind of connection with the 70 elders that Moses established in the Old Testament, uh, these elders that got to go up with him to Mount Sinai and see the glory of the Lord from afar and how maybe the Lord here is raising up a new group of men that get to see his glory on display through the work they do in these cities. Maybe this is Jesus coming against the 70 leaders of the Sanhedrin the religious Pharisees in that day that were the ones that would bring judgment according to the law and would be the court of that day when it came to religious things. And maybe this is Jesus establishing his own 70 leaders. It's interesting, though, that the number of disciples he calls here parallels the number of nations thought to exist at that time in the world. And so, speaks to a a deliberate inclusion of of getting all the regions and make sure that every place is hit and there's no one left out. Because unlike the 12, when they were called and sent out, they were told to go to the lost people of the children of Israel, specifically the Jewish people. Whereas here we see an inclusion of all the Gentiles as well. So it seems regardless of the specific reason for that 70, if we could know it, What we do know is that this is much more of a broad mission than the specific one given to the 12. And that just as Luke continues to emphasize throughout his gospel, it's the good news going out to all people and not just to the Jewish people. And this process, though, is something that we see throughout Scripture. It's what Paul speaks of in Romans 1.16 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And the 12 were sent out specifically first to the Jewish people, and yet now what we see him doing is sending out these 70 to the greater region, the Gentiles there, to prepare the way for Jesus. And they're not to go out solo. Jesus gives them also a specific instruction, like he gave the 12, that they're to go out two by two. Okay, so we've discussed some possibilities of why 70, but why two by two? What's, what's this? First and foremost, we could say it's for an accountability purpose, to have someone with you, and it's also for a refining purpose. It's for your good. Proverbs 27, 17 talks about how as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And there's a sharpening and and an accountability that comes when you're, when you're going throughout these regions with another person who can, who can hold you accountable to what you say and how you act. 
and can also testify in your behalf in case something comes up or maybe there's rumors being spread about what you did and what you didn't do. And that's not unique to this moment. All the way back in Deuteronomy 19, it talks about the, the ability when you have two or three gathered that it's a, a double witness that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a, a testimony would be established. And so this is for their protection. It's for their good. Um, it provides companionship. You're not out there on your own trying to figure this out. And, you know, this last week I was supposed to go on a trail run with a friend. And we needed to get the run uh, kind of done early in the morning. It was going to be a bit of a longer run. And, and we had established a time. The only problem is that Lucas misread the time. And so I showed up about 25 minutes late when we were supposed to run. And it's really early in the morning. It's about 5.15. And I see his car there, but I don't see him. And so I'm like, I'm sure he's gone on the run already. And so I, I shot him a quick text and said, I'm, I'm going to run and I'm going to try and catch up to you and I'll meet you along the way because I knew it was about a four and a half mile run out and then back and a lot of trails down by the river. And so I just take off running. And about a mile into it, I was just reminded of, of how differently you experience trails in the dark uh, when you're with people as opposed to when you're on your own. How much bolder you feel when you hear a sound in the bushes and you're like, I dare you to come out. Uh, when you're on your own, you're not kind of having these thoughts or these bold claims. I was praying, Lord, whatever it is. I don't care if it's a squirrel or a mountain lion. Just keep it away from me, far from me. I think I probably set record time running out because I did not want to meet whatever it was making noises in the bushes. And I got to the halfway point where we need to turn around and quickly realize, well, I've gotten all the way here. Clearly, he didn't go this way. And then I get a text from him saying, hey, I actually went a different route this time. And I'm like, I know this because I'm at the turnaround point and I haven't seen you. But there's some protection and some comfort that comes when you know you're not going out on your own. When you've got somebody with you who's going to be alongside you, who's going to help support you and pray for you and bear that burden with you, someone that can sharpen you so they're to go out two by two. You know, this wasn't unique to the 12. This wasn't unique to the 70. Paul, a man who God sent out, uh, we often give him a lot of the spotlight because of the incredible work he did in writing most of the New Testament and, and sharing the gospel. And yet we can often forget that Paul always had a companion with him that Paul wasn't a lone ranger, whether it was Paul and Barnabas or other times it was Paul and Silas or it was Paul and Timothy or Paul and John Mark. It was Paul and Epaphras and Gaius and Luke and Onesimus and Priscilla and Aquila and et cetera, et cetera. Paul always went out with companions. They went out in numbers. They didn't try and do it on their own. And I can tell you, even in my own life, there have been moments I'm so grateful that I didn't try and do it on my own. Moments when I needed somebody to call me out because I was getting off course and I wasn't noticing it on my own. Times when I was discouraged and I needed someone to give me a word of encouragement and to remind me to not grow weary when doing good. Times when I was fearful and I needed that person with me to say, it's all right, we're going to figure it out together. Let's just step out in faith. 
And there's such a comfort, a protection, an accountability, and a strength that comes with numbers. And we see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 when it talks about how two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. They're more effective. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But listen, woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if they lie down, two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jesus sends them out to the surrounding cities, this large group of 70, but to go out in twos, to spread throughout the city, but to never be alone as they go before this work. But listen what he's sending them out to do. He says that he's sending out them out before his face in every city and place where he himself was about to go. So this is very much in line with what John the Baptist was called to do. What did he do? He came to prepare the way for Jesus. And he came and called people to repentance. And then Jesus comes on to the scene and, Jesus, and John hands it off to Jesus. He quickly gets out of the way, says, man, I need to decrease. He needs to increase. Man, the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to loose his sandal strap. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with fire. It was preparing the way for people and quickly directing them to Jesus. This wasn't for the 70 to establish a bunch of followers of themselves or to make a name for themselves. In fact, what's interesting is, do you notice among the 70, we're not given names? Now, now we know the 12, and some of them we know more about than others, but among the 70 here, we don't get names. And yet the most important thing about these 70 we'll read next week is not about us knowing their names, but the fact that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That God knew their names and they were written in his book. And it's a great reminder for us this morning because it started with 12 and even within that group we could see the three, but now it's branched out to the 70 and it will spread out even further as it goes to the day of Pentecost and continues to grow into the church we know today. But it's not about us and our name. And as he sends us out, it's not about making a reputation for ourselves. It's preparing the way for Jesus. And so we go and we, we share the kingdom of God and we, we do his work for his glory, but we're doing so to bring them to Jesus, just to be a bridge. And as soon as they come to Jesus, we step out of the way. We're not trying to create followers of ourselves because we'll fail people. We will let people down. We can't be there always when they need us to be. But when we draw them to Jesus, the one who never fails, the one who never leaves them or forsakes them, the one who has infinite wisdom and power available to those in Jesus, we're leading them to a sufficient source that never runs dry. For these 70, it wasn't about their name. It wasn't about them bringing followers to themselves. They went before to prepare the way as ambassadors proclaiming the coming of the king is at hand. And do you realize we still do that today? 
Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. And our mission, our responsibility is to go out to the surrounding regions and prepare the way for Jesus' return. The people would hear of the kingdom of God. And here with these disciples, there's a call to answer because the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. He tells them, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, we saw the problem with this last week was that you had these bold proclamations but weak applications. People that were boldly declaring what they would do, and yet when it came to put it into practice, they weren't willing to follow him. And he brings that reality right before these 70 as he's sending them out. that The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And the harvest is ready. It's time for us to go out and gather them. And Jesus sees this as an incredible opportunity. And he doesn't want anybody to delay. And he says, man, there is so much opportunity and not enough people to come and gather it all in. Like a harvester in that time, it looked out at the grain fields and saw, man, it is time to gather. And the clock is ticking because if we don't gather quickly, some of this is going to spoil and go bad. And the moment they see it was ready to harvest, it was time to gather as many workers as they could to gather as much of it as they could quickly. And there's a call to urgency he's bringing here before the 70 that he's going to continue to speak to. And even today we see this problem existing that there is, man, such an opportunity, such a great harvest right outside our doors and yet so few laborers that are willing to go and gather. And so what does he tell them you need to do? First and foremost, you need to pray. You need to pray to the Lord of the harvest And I love the language here because he's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one you pray to for laborers, and he's the one who Paul says would bring the increase. It's all his work. He started it. He will finish and complete it, but he's calling you to be obedient to be a part of it. And he says, first and foremost, when you look out and you see the opportunity and the need for more laborers, pray Pray that the Lord would put it on the hearts of more people to go out and be a part of bringing in that harvest, of sharing the gospel, of bringing the good news throughout the surrounding region. But I love this. It doesn't stop with just praying that God would bring more people. Yeah, sit at home and say, God, why are more people not getting up and going out? He says, pray, but then he also tells them the very next thing, now go. And realize this, as you begin to pray for the Lord to send people out to these opportunities where the harvest is plentiful, you'll begin to realize he begins to put on your heart, you're a part of that solution. And so we can look around and we can point the fingers and say, I see a dozen people not doing this, but maybe he's brought it to your attention because he wants you to be a part of the solution. And so he says, pray, look to the Lord for provision, But also go and do your part. 
and be a part of that harvesting because many hands make for light work. And so the 70 are to go out, but they're also to pray that God would raise up others as well. Now, the original Greek here is much stronger language than God just sending out some laborers. The language actually speaks to pushing them forward, thrusting them out. It's the same word that's used for when they would cast a demon out of a possessed person. And that's not a gentle little, hey, would you mind going out? Thank you. Appreciate that. Right? Like that's an intense process of, of, th- of praying over that person that that demon would be cast out from them. And this is how he's sending out or casting out the 70. It is forceful. It is strong language. In fact, if we can pull up that quote, here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say about it. It takes great power to drive the devil out. It will need equal power from God to drive a minister out to his work. Because as what we've already discussed, we're prone to wander. We are prone to drag our feet. We are prone to have a whole list of excuses of why I know it's good and I would go, but first, like last week. And sometimes what we need is for the Lord to forcefully and strongly just push us out. And it'll feel uncomfortable and maybe at times we're wishing he would have pushed somebody else out. And yet we walk in obedience to that call. Listen to the context that Jesus tells them he's sending them out to. He says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. As lambs among wolves. He doesn't send them out saying, I'm sending you guys out like lions and you've got the gospel and there are people that just need to be devoured and consumed and man, you're gonna, nobody can stop you. He says, I'm sending you out like a weak, defenseless, harmless lamb amongst wolves that travel in packs that are far stronger and more aggressive than you that could tear you apart He's not trying to sell them here as as a salesman and like, it's going to be easy, guys. It's going to be a breeze. You're going to go there. People are just going to love you. They're going to be cheering your name in the streets. Man, everywhere you go, people are just going to think you're the best thing that's ever happened. No, he's, he's honest with them about how he's sending them out. Matthew even gives more description of what this is going to look like when when in the account of Matthew, it says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. So he tells them, I'm sending you out, and they're going to be like wolves. 
They are going to scourge you. They are going to persecute you. They're going to bring you before courts. They're going to put you in the prisons. And so how do you respond? Well, first and foremost, be wise as a serpent. But be as gentle or as harmless as a dove. He's calling them to be wise as they go into territory. They know that the enemy is hostile against the gospel they're bringing. Don't be foolish. Be wise about it. Understand what you're walking into and don't go in there unaware of what's going to take place. You don't want to be caught off guard by it or surprised by it. Expect it. You desire to live godly, you will suffer persecution. Be ready for that. Be wise about how you respond, and we see this in Jesus' life, don't we? With these Pharisees that are always trying to trap him in his words, that come with all these questions and ideas about, oh, see, there's no right answer here. We've got him. And yet he was so wise in his response. They come to him with a, a trick or a trap. What, what, what do you think the people should do with their money? When, when Caesar wants them to give taxes, what do, what do you think they should do? And they're thinking, we've got him in a trap. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. There's such wisdom in the way he responds to people. And yet even in that response, you don't see an intensity and an aggressiveness that tries to tear down these men but a gentleness to his response. We saw the aggressiveness of James and John and their response to the Samaritans who wouldn't give them a place to stay, and yet Jesus says, no, 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 I came to save men's lives, not to destroy them. You want to respond with an intensity like a wolf, but I'm not calling you to be wolves among wolves. You're going out to be wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. Now, he calls them to be gentle, but not to be gullible, as his example displayed well. And in that area, you have to understand, wolves were the most common enemy of sheep. They roamed looking for sheep that would stray from the flock and be easily attacked and taken away. Yet another reason why he has sent them out in twos, so that they wouldn't be on their own and be isolated and set themselves up for a track that they might a trap where they might be attacked. And yet then he calls them to this, and in that context, knowing what they're about to face, he says, and I don't want you to carry a money bag or a knapsack or extra sandals. I don't want you to bring any of this stuff. I want you to travel light. You're thinking, what? You just told me all that I'm about to experience. Wouldn't it be good to have some money on hand where I might be able to bribe these guys to not beat me up? Wouldn't it be good to have some extra supplies in case they tear my clothes and steal my stuff so I have a little extra? Knowing the context of what you're sending me into, Jesus, why would you limit what I have? Well, there's a couple reasons. First and foremost, We understand that when you've got a short window between flights, you bring a carry-on. You don't check a bag. When you're limited on your time, you travel light so you can move more quickly. And for these disciples, even as we saw last week as well, comfort and ease are not the priority. 
So they're to keep moving, keep preaching, keep going on, and not to be held back by the vast majority of things they're taking with them. Marie Kondo would be so proud of this minimalistic missionary call, right? Just get rid of it. But most importantly, what he's demonstrating to these 70 as they go out is that he'll provide what they need, that he'll be their protection when they come against the wolves. He's calling them to faith. He's calling them to obedience and a surrender in trusting that he's going to give us what we need when we need it. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Because if he gave us this month, our monthly bread, we would touch base with him again in a month when we're out of bread. But this call to daily bread, to just take what they have on them, it's sending them out with a constant dependency upon God in every moment. That we don't even know where our next meal is going to come. We don't even know where we're going to sleep tonight. We don't even have a spare pair of sandals for if these break along the road. We're going in total dependency of Jesus. Way to live your life for the followers of Jesus. What I don't want every one of you to hear as you leave here today is shame on you if you've got another pair of shoes in the closet. Shame on you if you've got a change of clothes at home. Shame on you if you have money in the bank. That's not what he's saying here. This is a short missionary journey. He's sending them out to prepare the way. There will be a later time when he is departing and sending them out for the remainder of their lives. And in that time, he will call them to bring some extra things, to take a sword, to take the sandals, to have a change of clothes. There was a time for that. But this short-term mission work, what he is calling them to do is to go prepare the way as he is coming and to travel light, to not be slowed down by their things. And there is something in this in your bank account. These aren't evil or wrong things in and of themselves, but let me ask you, are they slow from running the race of faith? Are they causing you to no longer depend on Jesus? Because these good things can become bad things when they become your source of dependence your source of help and strength and confidence when they hinder you from the call of God because you understand going and answering that call might call, call you to give up some of the things you have. If there is a tension there, if within your heart you feel a tug and a delay in being obedient to that call, then maybe there is something the Lord is calling you to give up today. How have we allowed our stuff to get in the way of our call? Have we accumulated so much that it's actually limiting our ability or our willingness to go out? It might be time to eliminate some of the clutter that is limiting our call. And only the Lord can truly reveal to each one of us individually what that looks like. There could be some with very little who are still holding on to something too tightly. There could be those who have a lot and yet they've held everything so loosely. Like Job, truly within their heart are saying, Lord, give and take away, but blessed be your name. 
And God continues to bless with more because they are holding it loosely. They're generously giving it. They're not allowing it to hold them back from being obedient to that call. But there's a call to urgency here along with dependency. Because he tells them, as you go out, greet no one along the road. And you think, how rude of these disciples. You're going out with a message of peace and you want to see people saved and you're not greeting anybody on the road? This isn't permission to be rude. It's a call to stay on mission and target. He's calling them not to delay. He's once again speaking to the urgency of what they're doing because you have to understand in that culture, a greeting was a lot more than the greeting we do on a Sunday morning after worship before we do announcements. It wasn't a quick, hi, how's it going? Nice to see you. Glad you're here. And then you move on about your way. A greeting for them could take hours. It could take a full day. You're greeting each other, you're hearing about families, you're having a meal, you're sitting down for a while, you're sharing stories. A greeting was a much longer process. And he's saying, your call is too urgent, the time is too short, the message is too important for you to delay along the roadside. You need to go to these cities and tell them about the gospel. Everything in Jesus' instructions here is speaking to the shortness of time these people have and the urgency of this task. You know, that urgency, I think, today is far too often lost. They had the guarantee that as they go out quickly to these places, Jesus is quickly coming right behind them. And I think as we look towards the future with no clear pinpoint that we can say, oh, Jesus is going to be here within the next four years, so we need to hurry this up. We can look and go, well, no man knows the day or the hour, and we, we see he's coming quickly, but we don't know if that's in our lifetime or not, and what we can tend to do is, is slow down, is lose our sense of urgency. And yet the reality is, whether Jesus comes in our lifetime or not, there are people in our lifetime that are going to be with him, are going to stand before him. On average, 150,000 people die every single day. And so even if we don't feel the urgency that Jesus might be coming this week, realize there are people maybe we'll even brush shoulders with today that might not be here next week. Do we feel the urgency of that call with everybody that we're coming into contact with, knowing that eternity is on the line? Because James 4 talks about how our life is a vapor. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Psalm 144, verse 4, says that man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Life is short. And time is a commodity you can't get back. Are we living with an urgency that we should be when we know that Eternity is on the line, and there are people you might come in contact with even today who are going to spend eternity in a place neither of us want them to. And we have a message of peace that could put them in a right standing with God. Like he mentioned last week, no one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom. And here he's calling these disciples to go out solely focused on the mission. Don't be slowed down by conversation and 
You've got a mission. You've got a message. And the time is urgent, so go and don't be delayed. Like Paul speaks to in Colossians when he tells us that if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. He's calling them to remember your purpose and what I'm sending you out with. Set your mind on things above and allow the things above to be the priority. And if something is swallowing up your time that is not about his kingdom, that is not with your mind set on things above, and it's hindering that, you don't have time for it. Your time is too valuable. Your call is too great. The message is too important to waste. He tells them as they move on that whatever house you enter, say peace to that house. Because that's the message they came with. It was a message of peace, of shalom, as they would say as they entered a home. And so they were to greet that house with peace. And in some homes, the people would receive that. But rather, whether the peace was received or not, he tells them, remain in that place as long as you're in that city and, and eat whatever they place before you in that space. They weren't called to couch surf, to, to continue to just bounce around. And if, if they're not very friendly or if the food's not very good, then go down the road a little bit, knock on a couple more doors, find a place that's got the extra room and they're, they're feeding you the best meal and they've really got the gift of hospitality. And he, he's... Very intentional here with what he tells them. That you go to a home and you bring a message of peace. And if they don't receive it, it'll come back to you. And if they receive it, great, that's perfect. But he tells them not to jump from home to home and not to just travel around and find places where people would favor them. Because it's not a going wherever it's comfortable and convenient and wherever people give them the best food and wherever people give them the best lodging. And it seems much more about a, a message that favors them and not a message that is focused on those they came to reach. And so he says, when you go, you don't bounce around from homes, and you bring a message of peace, and continue to pursue that peace. But there will come a time when people are going to reject you, when cities are not going to receive you. And when that time comes, man, you shake the dust from your feet. You go out into the streets, and you proclaim to those people the judgment that is coming. It's something we saw all the way back in Deuteronomy in Moses' instructions to the people when he said, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And what's interesting is, do you realize that people get an opportunity now where we come with a message of peace, the peace that's made possible because of what Jesus did if we will surrender to him. And we go with that message to the homes, to our friends, to our families, to people in our neighborhoods. But if they reject that message of peace, what they need to realize is that there will be 
a coming war, and they're going to be besieged, as Moses said. There will come destruction to those who are against God, and there's no neutral party. And so we come with a message of peace now, because Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, but he's coming back as a conquering king. And I promise you, you want to be on the right side of that battle And the only way you're on the right side of that battle is if you receive the peace that he's made possible for you. And so they went first with a message of peace to people. But if people rejected them, if people did not receive that, then they were to shake the dust off, just as the disciples were told to do, the 12 in the last chapter in verse 5. Shake the dust off. Have nothing to do with these people that are rejecting it and, and move on to the next place. Continue to bring that message of peace. And they were to eat and drink such things as were given to them because the laborer is worthy of his wages. These ambassadors of Jesus were called to be content with whatever was placed before them by the generosity of their hosts. And we hear that and it feels like a very simple and easy call unless you've been on the mission field. Okay? And And I can tell you firsthand, I've gone places and I've had food placed before me at times that it was a little bit of a longer prayer before that meal. And there were a a couple additional requests like, Lord, help this to go down smoothly and please don't allow this to affect my body in any negative way. One of my good friends, UJ, was uh, out in the bush in Kenya and he, he was visiting a village that he had gone to a couple times, and he was preparing to come back to the States. And so um, they wanted to do a bit of a celebration for him. And, and they're doing this whole ceremony. And then at one point, they go over to one of the huts, and they take one of the gourds off the corner of the huts, and they bring it over to him, and, and they place a cup before him, and they open it up, and they pour the contents of what was inside that into his cup. And And what it is, is goat's milk that they put into this gourd, and then they allow it to sit in that gourd all summer long and just kind of refine and get very um, gelatinous. And, And so they're pouring this in his cup, and he said the closest comparison was like a cottage cheese, sort of, Um, and... And I said, what'd you do? And he, he said, I prayed, and then I chugged that thing as fast as I could while I prayed that the Lord would just keep it down. And, and he made it his goal while I was there for two weeks with him to just try and repeat that process with me. And thankfully, I hadn't been there long enough. They didn't feel the necessity to break out another gourd for me, and I, I thank the Lord for that. But, but there are times that you know, being content with whatever is placed before you could be difficult. Any of you who have children, here's your verse. You take that home with you, right? You eat those vegetables and you be content with what God has placed before you. <laughs> I say that half joking, but here it was a call to contentment. That as I send you out, I'm going to provide for you, but you be content with whatever I provide for you. And it may not look like what you want it to look like, Maybe you wanted more. Maybe you wanted less. Maybe you wanted something different, but you be content as I provide. And that's a struggle we have as humans. Do you remember when Jesus provided for the children of Israel in the desert? Oh, we're so hungry, and he provides manna from heaven. Oh, we're so hungry for something else. 
So he provides birds of the air. These people just continue to complain, continue to want more, continue to want something else other than what he's provided for them. Have you and I been guilty of that at times? Lord, would you provide for my needs? And then it's tight, and we barely scrape by, and we're like, Lord, would you provide a little more for my needs? Lord, would you provide transportation? And he provides transportation. Lord, I'd love some transportation that looks a little different. Right? These moments when we have these things arise. And he calls us to be content with whatever it is he provides for us. Can you do that with a grateful heart before the Lord? To say, Lord, you give and take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And so whatever you place before me, I'm going to accept it as enough, as a gift. And I'm going to give thanks for it and continue to serve you. And what are they going with? What is their ultimate purpose and priority as they go out to these cities? He tells them to do two things, the same two things he told the disciples to do. That you're to go with a message of the gospel. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. And you're to heal the sick. These are things that were impossible for them to do unless he first gave them the power and the authority to do so. But what we'll see next week is the same thing we saw with the 12, that his authority and power he gives them is sufficient for what they come across. And they're going to come back with testimonies of the incredible ways that God uses them to do things they could not do apart from him. And they get to boldly proclaim, man, Jesus, the things we were able to do in your authority and power, it's incredible. They're things they were never able to do before, like healing the sick and casting out demons. And they preach the kingdom of God. And we end our text this morning seeing this woe of judgment on these cities that had rejected the Lord. That judgment comes to those who reject Jesus and his gospel. And he speaks of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, ancient cities that are compared with these modern-day cities in Jesus' time of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And what you need to know about these ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon and, and Sodom is that these ancient cities were Phoenician cities that were known for their wickedness and their sin. This is where Jezebel, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, came from, was Tyre and Sidon. This is where the worship of Baal, the false god, came from, was from these Phoenician cities. Sodom, known for its wickedness and sexual immorality. God brings fire and brimstone down from heaven to consume that place. And he says, those cities... Known for that wickedness, it will be better for them on the day of judgment than for these cities that Jesus is going through. Do you realize Jesus performed more miracles and preached more sermons in Capernaum than any other place? He had established his base here while he was doing ministry in Galilee. And yet the sin of these cities was not that they attacked Jesus, but that they were apathetic towards him unmoved by the Messiah. They saw his work. They heard his message, and yet they rejected his claim and the call to follow him. 
And the result of such a rejection of Jesus and his people and his father would ultimately be their destruction. Though they may have been exalted to heaven and experienced more of the kingdom of God than any other place, it says that they would be brought low to Hades because of their rejection. In church, we're in a world today that's in danger of being guilty of the very same thing. We have the word of God freely before us. The spirit of God is offered to us. The power of God is accessible to us. The call of God is made clear in front of us. And yet far too often, it's not that we reject it, it's that we neglect it. It's not that we cast it aside as not the truth, it's that we don't allow it to move us, change us, transform us, and call us to be obedient to him. And for some today, perhaps God is going to call you to a crossroads where you need to make a decision to step into obedience in a way you haven't before. To no longer make excuses, to no longer ignore the call, but to step out in obedience. Because as he finishes and as I invite the worship team to come up, what he makes clear is that those who reject his disciples as his ambassadors are rejecting him. And those who reject him are rejecting his father who sent him. What an elevation of these men that don't even get a name in the description as ambassadors that get to represent Jesus to this place. And also what an elevation of Jesus for those who would say he was just a prophet as he says, no, if you reject me, you reject my father because the father and I are one. And so this morning as we move into a time of worship, a time to respond to Jesus and to his word and to his call, I want to give an opportunity for, for you to respond as you see fit. There's going to be people available for prayer in the front of the room during the time of worship who would love to pray with you. And whatever that prayer may be needed for, if it's to, for the first time, step out in faith and surrender to Jesus, or if it's because you recognize areas within your life where you've lost sight of the call and where you've gotten off task, maybe you've lost sense of the urgency, don't hesitate to come and receive prayer from someone who is running that race with you and desires to follow the Lord as you do and to answer that call, to be obedient to the mission before us. Would you join me as we close in a word of prayer? And would you stand in this time as we move into worship? And Lord, we come before you at this time, God, and we ask that you would be glorified. God, as we come before you, Lord, as we surrender to you, Jesus, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. That as you call us to obedience, as you show us the mission ahead, and as you continue to equip and call more, because the harvest is plentiful, we pray that we would be laborers that are faithful, laborers that are obedient, laborers that are praying for you to equip others and send them out, and that we too would go in obedience and faith. We thank you, Jesus, for your word that is living and active. 
We thank you for the gospel that transforms lives. And we pray as we go out, Lord, that there would be a great harvest, that many would come to salvation in Jesus. For your glory and not our own, to magnify your name above all else. And to the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's sing this out together.